0: And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today?
1: Well, Lloyd, today our show is about transparency, transparency with corporations, transparency with government, especially when we've heard all this that's been going on with NSA, and private corporations. So this is I'm so thrilled that we're going to have Nate Cardozo on our show. He's a staff attorney with the Electronic Frontier Foundation and as you know, we've had them on our show before and this is the first time we've had Nate on, but he's terrific. He um he's basically doing a lot of work in the area of digital civil liberties and he's on that team. He focuses on free speech and privacy litigation. A former EFF, Electronic Frontier Foundation's Open Government Legal Fellow, Nate most recently spent two years honing his complex litigation skills at Drinker, Biddle, and Wreath before returning, as he says, to his senses and back to EFF. In addition to his work at EFF, Nate teaches first-year legal writing and moot court at UC Hastings. And something interesting he let me know is that he brews his own beer and he's been to India three times and watches too much Bollywood. So a little bit of fun. I really am expecting a lot of fun with Nate. And you can learn more about him at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, where you can see his photo, his bio and the link to EFF.org. So, Nate, thanks so much for joining us from San Francisco.
0: Mari, thanks for having me on.
1: So you came to your senses, huh? What was so fun about going back to EFF?
0: Well, working here at EFF, I mean, we're on we're on the front lines of, of free speech and privacy on the Internet. Uh, the people I work with are, are inspiring. Um, the, the legal director here, Cindy Cohen, as well as all of the rest of the staff attorneys, the activists, the international folk, uh, everyone here is just uh, a, a true inspiration to work with. And this is... This is why I went to law school, and this is my dream job.
1: Well, that is wonderful, and you're doing such great work. So tell us about um, EFF. Uh, tell us about their, um, their, <laughs> their report, their back report. What are some of the significant findings that they did in the EFFs um, who has your back report?
0: Sure. Uh, So our Who Has Your Back report is a yearly report. Uh, We release it every April. I think uh, this year was our third. Uh, And and the Who Has Your Back report uh, looks at the privacy uh, practices of a number of different companies. I think we had 17 companies uh, examined this year. We started with with fewer than that. We started with like six or seven. Uh, But this year we're up to 17. And the Who Has Your Back report looks at uh, companies policies vis-a-vis your pr- protecting your data uh, from government intrusion it's not a it doesn't go into consumer privacy it doesn't go into um, uh, privacy as to other companies it's really about uh, what companies do to protect your privacy uh, against um, unwarranted government intrusion into the data mm-hmm. and we give gold stars we don't we don't give ratings we don't uh, we don't give a score. We give gold stars for when companies follow certain privacy protective practices. Um, and so what it's really intended to do is uh, not shame companies in who, who don't behave well. It's intended to give give a bonus, give a little shout out to those companies who do behave well uh, in, in the privacy sphere.
1: And what were some of the factors that you used to see if they behaved well?
0: So we... Uh, we give gold stars for six different things. Uh, the, the first is whether a company always requires a warrant when the government uh, comes seeking your content. There, there's all sorts of different things that companies have on you, um, and I'm sure you've heard the terms metadata yes. uh, and, and content. Uh, the Fourth Amendment is, is pretty clear that you have the right to be secure in your, in your papers and effects. The law has developed over the last uh, several years um, and, and, and we believe that the Fourth Amendment requires a warrant uh, whenever law enforcement seeks content. So that's the first. Uh, the second is that the, the company tells users about government data requests. Um, they're not required to do so, but we believe it's best practice. Uh, the third gold star is for publishing a transparency report, and this is a, a list of statistics about government requests uh, for user data. Uh, the, fit, the, uh, the fourth is that they publish their law enforcement guidelines, and law enforcement guidelines are the um, you know are the the, the rules that the uh, company will hold law enforcement up to uh, mm-hmm. when they come seeking your data. And then the last two stars are for fighting for your privacy rights in courts and in Congress.
1: Okay, so uh, so what, what were some of the who were some of the companies that got gold stars?
0: So the the companies we list uh, that that, that we examine uh, range from companies like Apple and Amazon to Microsoft, Google, uh, Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Yahoo. Uh, Every company that we we examined got at least one gold star with the exception of Verizon. Um, Verizon has taken uh, very few steps to protect user privacy. Uh, Twitter uh, got got stars in all six categories.
1: Wow, that's something. So, so they were they got the best rating, right, in terms of gold stars. Who was next? Who else got more than uh, three gold stars?
0: Uh, Sonic.net also got six stars. Actually, Sonic.net is a uh, local Bay Area ISP. Uh, they're smaller than most of the companies that that we rated, and we included them. Uh, for two reasons. First is they reached out to us and asked to be included, so so we included them in the report. Uh, and then second, we included them as sort of an exemplar. Uh, so Sonics and ISP, they provide uh, DSL and other broadband Internet access to residential and business customers here in the San Francisco area. And we wanted to hold them up as an example to companies like AT&T and Verizon and Comcast to show that a for-profit business can really still be exceptionally uh, good in terms of privacy, uh, Comcast, AT and T, Verizon, uh, don't get good marks on our uh, on our on our chart, and we wanted to say that look, you know, a, a for profit company can still do the right thing and still make money.
1: Right, right. So who else was up at the top that we might know?
0: Who else is up at the top? Google got five out of six stars. Um, Microsoft got four out of six. Um. Let's see. WordPress, uh, it, the popular blogging uh, yeah. platform, got yeah. got four out of six. Yeah. Um, Dropbox got five. Uh, LinkedIn got five. Mm. Um, and actually, uh, the the star that LinkedIn missed uh, this year was that. Um, It had not yet fought for its users' privacy rights in the courts. Um, Recently, uh, LinkedIn has started to fight uh, for privacy rights in the courts. So if we were examining them today, they would get six out of six.
1: Mm. So let's talk about why companies should release transparency reports and what we learn from them.
0: Absolutely. Um, So I'll I'll talk a little bit more about what a transparency report is. Okay. So a transparency report is a list of... Uh, of numbers essentially it's a it's a set of statistics that a company will release to describe uh, how many and what type of government demands for user data uh, it gets uh, most companies that release transparency reports uh, don't just include u s government but also include governments from from around the world uh, Why is this important the when uh, when, when we're descri- in a democracy, when we are examining the rules that uh, that have in government conduct, we need to know what the government's actually doing. So you've, you've heard the controversies about the NSA uh, and the PRISM program and whether they have direct access to company servers it, and things like that. It's important to know what exactly companies are turning over uh, to the government. Uh, in order to have the debate about whether the laws are appropriate, whether the whether the NSA's programs are appropriate, what the FBI is doing, what local law enforcement is doing, and so transparency reports are really what gives us uh, that window. Uh, it, it's it's a public policy issue. It's not necessarily a. I don't think a an individual can make much of a. A judgment based on a, transparent, a single company's transparency report. Right. It's more for civil society to examine the actions of government. Um, so that that's what that's what transparency reports do. The best ones uh, don't just give you know the total number of user of uh, government requests and the total number of users affected. The best reports will break it down. They'll say, you No, know, we received five hundred search warrants. We received six hundred criminal subpoenas. We received uh 50 national security letters things like that so the more granularity the better
1: and then these transparency reports do they get seen by government at all do they get seen by the legislature or how how are you know how do you guys use them basically well you use them to see if they're even doing one right but yeah but what what you know what can be done with these what is the you know, what do we learn from them in terms of what can we do about them if there's so many um, subpoenas for, you know, certain records? What do we learn from that? What does government learn from that?
0: Well, so we use them in our lobbying efforts. That's, that's the biggest thing that we use them for. Um, and we also use them in our, in our public education campaigns. So if we know that, for instance, um, the FBI is seeking, um, you know, tens of thousands of, of users' data from Tumblr regarding child pornography, but very few uh, involving terrorism. That that shows us like what uh, what the various criminal processes are being used for.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh um, so, and, and that's important, right? Because if uh, if if we know that uh, that that user data is being sought in what appear to be good, legitimate uh, criminal investigations, right. then, then we, we think of that very differently than, as we, than if we thought that, if, if we saw from a transparency report, for instance, that more blanket access was, was being sought. Right,
1: right. So let's, you were talking about NSA, and we've heard so much about NSA in the news. What are some of the most significant things that we're learning from the leaked NSA documents?
0: Well, a lot of what we're learning is that we don't know very much. And it seems like not very many people know very much about what's going on. Uh, One of the more shocking revelations that that we had recently was that until 2009, no one at the NSA even had a complete picture of what the NSA was doing. Um, Mm -hmm. This was admitted in a a court filing uh, in 2009 that we didn't get until this year. And, And that's really... That's really disheartening to know that the uh, the nsa's surveillance machine was so big, so complex, and so pervasive that there was no one person who knew how it actually functioned and what it was collecting. Mm-hmm. Um, that's kind of out of control,
1: yeah, yeah and so um when we when we look at what's been going on with NSA, what are the legal authorities that NSA is using to justify all of this collection?
0: Well, there are a number of different authorities um. So let's, let's talk about uh, four different types of, of collection. Let's talk about, first of all, metadata collection versus content collection. So this is, uh, if we're talking about telephone, this is the metadata would be who you're calling and for how long. And then the content would be the actual recording of the phone call. Uh, for internet, it's similar. It's uh, it's who you're emailing and when, and what sites you're visiting and when, versus the actual content of those emails. Uh, Metadata appears to be collected under uh, under the Patriot Act under Section two fifteen of the Patriot Act, uh, originally passed in two thousand and one and reauthorized in two thousand and six and two thousand and eleven. Mm-hmm. The content of communications appears to be collected under a different law under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. Uh, we know a little bit less about about those programs, but they appear to be um, separate or relatively separate programs. Uh, so the Patriot Act and the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act are the big ones that, that the NSA is using to justify its actions.
1: Okay, so once they collect this metadata from there, they go and use FISA if they want to go further. Is that, is that what's happening?
0: That appears to be what's happening, although it's a little bit unclear. Uh, it may be that once they collect uh, metadata, they, they pass that metadata off um, it, it's called a tipper. They, they give a tip to local law enforcement, and then local law enforcement, which would include actually the FBI, uh, would start using search warrants. So it may be that the NSA uh, collects metadata under the Patriot Act and then sends a tipper to law enforcement who then starts using search warrants. Um, it's a little bit unclear as to, as to how the process actually works. Something that's important to keep in mind, of course, is that the NSA's program uh, began in late 2001, and wasn't, they, they didn't even attempt to legally justify it until 2006. So the first five years of the program were operating completely without legal justification mm. uh, or court approval.
1: Right. Now, the administration has said that it's committed to transparency, and now they're releasing formally classified documents. So what is your thought on that, that, that what they're saying now?
0: Um, well, if uh, if in fact they are committed to transparency, I I very much applaud that. Uh, I think the record might might belie that that statement. Uh, the the classified documents that we've seen released in the last couple of months have come from one of three sources. The first, obviously, is Edward Snowden. Um, this is the the NSA whistleblower who right. who took off with fifty thousand or so documents, gave them to Glenn Greenwald at the Guardian, uh, along with Laura Poitras and. Uh, Bart Gelman at the Washington Post, and the, the, those reporters have been releasing them piecemeal. Uh, the second source are a set of Freedom of Information Act requests filed by us, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and the ACLU. Uh, and then the fourth is the, recently the FISA court itself has uh, ordered the government to declassify a small number of opinions. So when the administration says that it's declassifying opinions, that's not exactly true. They're doing it pursuant to court order um, uh, in re- in response to Freedom of Information Act litigation uh, that EFF and ACLU are doing, and one court order by the FISA court itself from back in August.
1: So when you are asking for information under the Freedom of Information Act through EFF and the ACLU, how do you even know what to ask for if you don't even know what's there? Are you just asking for any, everything and anything, or, or what kinds of things are you asking for?
0: Yeah, well, uh, good question, and, it, and it's difficult. The answer is it's hard. Because uh, under FOIA, you have to ask for specific things, otherwise you can't get it.
1: Right, so that's, so what, that's the dilemma, right?
0: Yeah, it is. Uh, the, the two major uh, FOIA lawsuits that we have going right now, the first is for any FISA court opinion Uh, that includes significant legal analysis of the Patriot Act, and -hmm. the other one is any FISA court opinion that uh, includes significant legal analysis of Section 02 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. So these are the two major legal authorities that that NSA uses. Um, So we asked for some specificity, but but you're right. We did just have to ask for kind of everything that they had uh, with regard to those two laws.
1: And so... Don't they have certain timelines that they have to respond within for a FOIA? <laughs>
0: um, yes. Uh, well, uh, if, if any of your listeners have ever filed a FOIA request, especially yeah. <laughs> against one of the larger uh, government agencies, uh, we know that those guidelines or those those legal mandates are very rarely followed. Uh, the FOIA says that a government agency has to respond within 20 working days. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's pretty rare, um, so, we filed our, our Section 215 FOIA, for instance, in July, I believe, of 2012, and mm-hmm. just this summer uh, started getting the first releases.
1: Yeah, I know one of my uh, clients had worked for yeah. a security company, and he was fired due to um, identity theft, criminal identity theft, and we asked TSA for the background check, and uh, it took us three years to get the background check, and we don't even have a complete one. So I get it. I get it. We did it for you.
0: Yeah, <laughs> for FOIA, sudden, FOIA can be frustrating, for Yeah, sure.
1: it can be very frustrating. So why don't you explain a little bit to my audience about FISA? We've talked about it before, but the FISA court and the fact that it has been kind of one-sided.
0: Sure. Um, so the the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was passed in 1978 in response to COINTELPRO, uh, a warrantless uh, surveillance program begun, I believe, under the Nixon administration. Uh, so, what the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act was supposed to do, it was it was intended to cabin the NSA's uh, authority. Uh, the NSA can't um, conduct surveillance against. Uh, U.S. persons, and that's a term of art that means Americans and anyone in America legally. So it's not just American citizens, it's it's residents as well. So NSA can't conduct surveillance against U.S. persons without getting an order from the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Court. The court meets in Washington, D.C. It's composed of federal judges uh, appointed by the uh, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and it meets in secret. It meets in a secure facility uh, behind, uh, like, wire mesh cages to prevent electronic eavesdropping, behind a combination lock door in Washington, D.C., and the only people allowed to appear before it are government lawyers. That's exceptionally unusual at the law. Almost In, in almost every other circumstance in American law, um, we have we have an adversary process. We have the government prosecutor accusing someone of a crime and the, uh, accused has a defense lawyer. Uh, in civil cases, we have a plaintiff and a defendant and the judge is a neutral arbiter who sits back, hears arguments from both sides and decides which one is, is persuasive under the law. The FISA court's different. The FISA court is, has government lawyers unilaterally coming up, uh, arguing their side. And then the judge decides, um, so it's, it's pretty one-sided. It, uh, it occurs in secret, and then the opinions are released in secret. There's, there is a process whereby uh, opinions can be declassified that has happened extraordinarily rarely uh, over the 30-something years of the FISA court's existence. Um, the, we do know that providers are allowed to object to orders. So this means that like, if I'm Verizon... And I get an order saying uh, Verizon has to turn over all of its customers' call data. And that order exists. We know we know it because we, that was the very first document that we saw from uh, Mr. Snowden.
1: Right. Okay.
0: Uh, Verizon could have objected to that order. Turns out that no provider has ever objected to any order. Uh, no telecom provider, I should say, has ever objected to any order ever in the FISA. Hmm. Uh, so while there is a possibility of an adversary proceeding, uh, it's never happened.
1: Right. And so it seems that one of the things I know that has been discussed is setting up at least the adversarial system where there is the government and then somebody on the other side to argue why it should not happen. Is that, is that something that you think will happen in the near future?
0: Um, I guess the, the most honest answer here is I... Nobody knows at this point. Yeah. Uh, there, there have been a couple of proposals. Uh, I think there are 19 bills uh, in Congress right now to uh-huh. reform the FISA. Right. Um, and a few of them have, have posited the possibility of setting up some sort of top-secret adversary uh, um, system within the FISA court. We really don't know uh, what that would look like. Uh, there's the, the president has convened the privacy and civil liberties oversight board which has the un, unfortunate acronym of you know P club that's, <laughs> that's what we refer to it as so the P club is looking into a couple of these uh, these possibilities
1: yeah let's talk a little bit about the uh, electronic communications privacy act so tell us a little bit what it is and then does it need updating
0: sure um, so th- ECPA, as we call it, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act, was passed in 1986. Uh, so it's, it's not a young law at this point, and it has not been substantially updated. This is the law that uh, that limits when law enforcement is allowed to get um, your your documents online, uh, your email, whatever you have stored in Dropbox or in Google Documents, uh, your Facebook private messages, etc. Now. The internet looked very different in 1986 than it does now. Uh, most people didn't use email. The World Wide Web didn't exist. Um, companies like Facebook certainly didn't exist. And it, the the ECPA law depends on a couple of assumptions that are no longer true. Uh, cloud storage uh, was was not even considered by the by the authors of ECPA. Great. So on its face, what ECPA says is that if uh, if there's content online that's more than 180 days old, that's assumed to be abandoned, <laughs> and law enforcement doesn't need a warrant to get it. Um, that conflicts with the Fourth Amendment, and several courts have found that. Uh, so while, it, while the law on its face says that uh, law enforcement can get your emails, for instance, if they're over 180 days old without a warrant, right. um, we believe that's unconstitutional. So yeah, the, the ECPA law needs updating very badly.
1: Yeah, well, is that something that uh, EFF is making proposals as to updating it or what?
0: Absolutely. Um, EFF, ACLU, um, and a, a broad coalition of, of industry and civil society, and this includes companies like Google and Microsoft, um, are, are part of something called the Digital Due Process Coalition. And one, one of the major purposes of the Digital Due Process Coalition is to get ECPA reform passed uh in Congress this year. Uh, we're, we're working with a, a couple of different senators and we have a bill right now which uh, which passed out of committee and hopefully uh, will be debated on the floor soon.
1: All right. So we don't have a lot of time. We have about two minutes. What are some things that you think that we should really be concerned about and and really look at and, and how we can be of help to EFF?
0: Well, um, so EFF has a blog. Uh, it's at EFF.org. Our blog is called Deep Links, and you know, it changes on a daily basis. Sometimes action is needed very quickly, and we have action alerts listed on our website. This would be, for instance, um, like last year when SOPA, uh, this was uh, one of the, the really bad um, privacy-invasive laws came out. Sometimes there's only a couple of days' notice. So I would say go on EFF.org and look to see what action alerts we have out, Uh, Call your call your senators and congressmen and tell them that uh, the Electronic Communications Privacy Act needs updating and tell them that that you think the NSA has gone too far and needs to be reined in.
1: Exactly. And so uh, anything else that you want to tell us, like, for example, on on our cars? I know that you've been doing work around the black boxes and cars. We just have like another minute left. Is there something that they can do to um, can they just get emails from EFF?
0: Sure. Uh, you could sign up for our mailing list. It's called the Effector. Um, black boxes in cars is an interesting one. So the National Highway Traf- Traffic Safety Administration, NHTSA, uh, has proposed rules mandating that, that black boxes, event data recorders, uh, be in every car by next year. Uh, they haven't adopted these rules yet, so if you want to contact them and tell them what you think about the rules, uh, feel free. The problem with the rules is that there are no privacy protections whatsoever in the federal rules and we think that's inappropriate
1: exactly well thank you so much you've given such a great wealth of information and we will go to EFF.org and see all these things and, and learn as much as we can so we can protect ourselves and uh, you're terrific keep up the great work and we'll have you back again Nate
0: great thanks Mary
1: okay bye-bye. bye bye You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank, the host of Privacy Piracy. Visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. See our upcoming guests, download podcasts, link on to the URLs of our fabulous speakers, and uh, tell us what you want to know about privacy in the future. Thanks. Stay private.